Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. We are Knee in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 151, recorded on May the 18th. <laughs> I've written February the 18th, May the 18th, 2021. Despite my failure here, you will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Now, it is May. Yeah, so don't um, sort these episodes by recorded date, uh, because then you will find this just before uh, the ones we had in March. But speaking about that, Today's headlines, we will be kicking off with a focused segment on data modeling, which I'm really looking forward to. We'll then continue with some other Power BI goodies, or we may continue with Power BI goodies. We have a new icon in town, and I don't think I like it. We will be looking at Azure Static Web Apps. Moving into cyber attacks that uh, have made an impact. We have a bunch of news in both Intune and Config Manager, as well as some really cool features from the RSA 2021 conference for Azure AD. And Microsoft will be changing storage. They will be moving to Europe. That is definitely interesting. Suddenly I'm, I'm excited for, for the news as well. And, and we can start by saying that we will definitely not have time to record this episode today. No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, right, so yes. But we're going to start with data modeling. What is data modeling? Well, data modeling is icky, apparently. <laughs> and data modeling is, is, in its simplest form, it is a way to create a conceptual model of your business environment. Editing Alexander here. I didn't mean to say business environment. I, I meant to say business processes. Sorry. And we generally talk about three types of data models, where the first one is the conceptual data model. It basically defines what the system contains. Um, this is most often done by, by business stakeholders and, and data architects and the like. And the, the whole idea is to, to organize and, and scope and define business concepts and, and rules. So this is where we have the process modeling, the data requirements and, and all those stuff, they turn into the logical data modeling step. And then you have the logical data model. All right. So. Here we have a number of, of uh, pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. The entity, which is a real-world thing. It could be a customer or a product, if you were to use those. We have attributes, which are characteristics or properties of an entity. You may have customer name or you might have product price and, and the like. And then you have a relationship between them because, as it turns out, there is never just boom, we have products, but the products are not connected to anything else. It doesn't work that way. And that is the, the whole idea behind the need for this uh, logical uh, or conceptual uh, design. So we could technically stop here, 
and just have a drawing of the business processes and, and the different bits and pieces. And we could be happy there, but we cannot implement that in a database. To be able to do that, we need to take this actually two steps further, two steps further. And the first step is the logical data model. Here we are uh, trying to define the structure of the data elements, the bits and pieces that make up the entity, so to speak. And we also want to create the actual relations between them. The logical data modeling step is taking the, the conceptual data modeling step one step further. And here we can pretty much have all we need to build the next step. So we had customer name and we had product name or product price. This is where we specify that a customer name is a string. We can only have, well, we can have characters and we can have numbers, but product price, that's an in integer, which means that we cannot have decimals and we cannot have characters. So we are starting to scope what we're storing, right? And then finally, we get to the physical data model, which was where we put the whole shebang into a database. We can take the physical data model and, and store it as tables and relations inside of a database. This is where we add keys, like the, the customer number, for instance. It, it could be a primary key or similar. So why do we do this? Well, we need to figure out a way to store data. And I'm going to start with, have you ever heard about the normal forms? The first normal form, the second normal form, uh, or, or a similar? Mm, no, I, I can't say I have. So there is a process called normalization, and this was actually created by um, Edgar Codd, which in turn was the, the inventor of the whole relational model. This was back in the, the, uh, the 70s. He created the first normal form, the second and third normal form. And together with Raymond Boyce, he developed the theory of the Boyce-Codd normal form. And technically we have up to, I think there's at least six normal forms, but every day you use, you're going to stop with three, maybe the Boyce-Codd normal form as well. And these are, are um, kind of rules, but not necessarily rules, but they're, they're more like guidelines to figure out how should I structure things. Take a, a table uh, with um, people. What do you put in that table? Well, that's easy. We are going to put the first name, the, say, the, the second name, the last name. Um, are we going to put the city that they live in? Should we put that into that table? It's a basic yes or no question. It depends. Well, no, <laughs> it doesn't. No, because it doesn't say anything about the person. Ah. And the guy that doesn't know data modeling hits it out of the park. Exactly. Ooh. That's exactly the thing. Because the first, second, and third normal forms basically say that you should have your data always relate to the key. So if the key in the customer table is the customer ID, then everything should point back to the key. That means that I'm not going to store their cars, their cats, their anything that has nothing to do with the customer. So back to the, the city. It's kind of interesting to store the address, right? 
So how do mm -hmm. we sort that? Well, we create a table for addresses and that table has a primary key, address index, whatever you want to call it, address ID. And then you connect your address ID to your customer ID. But the funny thing is you're going to, you're going to hit something pretty quickly there. We have three kinds of relations between uh, entities, well, technically four, but three, three as, as we need. And those are one-to-one, -one, very, very rare. And there is almost no need to have a one-to-one -one relationship because you could just as well put the whole thing in the same table. You're with me there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can have multiple persons in the same city. It's very rare that you only have, or am I wrong here? No, you're, you're going down the right path. You're, you're just slightly, you're, you're just slightly lost. So a one-to-one -one <laughs> means that for every person, there is only one address and you cannot have multiple people on one address and you cannot have multiple addresses, one person. Ah, so one person, yeah. one address, that's a one-to-one. -one. Is that per key or per, what was the other? No, it, it is per key. It is per key. It is so per that's key. why yeah. that, it, it is, it, again, it's, it's fairly rare. And yeah. for the most part, you're not going to bothering doing that because if you have mm -hmm. a one-to-one -one relation like that, you can just as easily put the whole thing in the same table and point back to the, the primary key. Exactly, because then, then you have, this is the only person that have all of this data. Yes. And that would be very inefficient, I would assume, in the long run as well. Ah, like where you're going with that thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> so the other kind is one to many or many to one. This is where you have uh, one person can be uh, in one or more addresses, right? Mm -hmm. So where should you store what? Well, then you need to put for, let, let's take a, an example where we have one person and uh, animals. <laughs> one person can have multiple animals, but one animal mm -hmm. can only have one person, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that you are going to store the one side on the many side. So the, the animal knows which owner they have, but the mm -hmm. owners doesn't necessarily know which cat they have, for instance. So I, that, that's I think how that's a, a, yeah, that's the reality. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Editing Alexander here again. So a better example of a one to many is probably invoice lines and invoices instead of people and cats, but meh. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so how do it, you sort in many to many? Is that what's called a collective? Okay, that you could say that. <laughs> now, in order to store a many to many, then you need a third table. And that table is mm -hmm. going to store the primary key of the first table and the primary key of the second table. So suddenly it is the combined key that is unique. And that's how you sort uh, multiple people at the same address and one person having multiple addresses. So this is normalization. We are basically taking our uh, entities, all, all our, our processes, and we are tearing them apart. We are creating a crap ton of tables because we want our tables to um, conform to the normal forms. This is the most efficient way of putting data in them. And it's also pretty easy to understand how things relate to each other. Okay.
So back to your point about efficiency. How do I how do I get a list of all the people and all their their uh, animals? Well, I need to do joining. And as I need to find more and more data, then I need to join more and more tables. And joining is a complex operation. It will take up some computrons. It will take time. So where do you stop? Where do you stop normalizing? Well, that that is a discussion we could have for days probably, but you're generally going to find a reasonable level, but it will without a doubt give you a, a plethora of tables. And that is fine in, in a transactional system. Then we have the other side of the coin. And this is where I find a lot of people who are not versed in databases and data modeling from the beginning, so to speak. I've been at this for, for years and years and years. I had to learn the absolute basics when I came in. These days, uh, people coming in to Power BI, for instance, you do not need to know this. But if you do, everything becomes so much more uh, efficient. So the other side of the coin is what's known as a data warehouse. And this was pioneered by, uh, by Kimball, also back in the 70s. And the difference here is that in a transactional database model, it is designed for storage and accessibility. So everything should go straight down. We have, um, we have the, the customer here, we have the products here, we have addresses here, right? Small, well, small, um, narrow tables, I should say. Many uh -huh. narrow tables. The other side of the coin with the data warehouse is that a data warehouse is an integration of multiple transactional systems. And they are also from multiple disparate sources. So you probably need to do some, uh, some massaging of the data to conform it to your uh, data model. Yeah, because some data sources or tables may have different information but or information that looks in another way than what you're expecting in your transactional database where you are in full control oh bet on it um that is always the case um and that's that's the domain of the data engineer uh the data mm -hmm. engineer basically takes disparate data sources uh, beats them over the head until they look the same and then you feed it into a data warehouse and this is extremely important to understand that a data warehouse is completely different from a transactional data model. The data warehouse is designed for one thing and one thing only, data retrieval. We don't care very much how long it takes to put data in, which means that we are more interested in, in having blazingly fast re report and, and retrieval performance because we're going to look at billions and billions of rows. Again, they are aggregated from multiple systems. So by definition, you're going to have more data here, uh, more rows of data than you have in your transactional systems, right? Which makes sense. You don't care how quick a certain item can get into a warehouse if you buy something online. You care about how fast you can get it from the warehouse to your house. Pretty much, yeah. So that's why a data warehouse model looks entirely different. We 
don't want to do normalization. In fact, we don't want to have more than one, perhaps two steps in a join. And how the heck do you do that? Well, you introduce something called a fact table and dimension tables. And just like you took your, your data model and you tore everything to pieces, small pieces, we have customers here, we have um, animals here, we have cars there. No, that's, we, we don't care about that anymore. Suddenly we care about a fact that is a, a numerical something. Take for instance, a utility company. We are selling uh, power, we are selling water, we are selling all kinds of things. And for each sale, that is going to be a row in the fact table. So the fact table is just about only containing numbers, right? We have a date, for instance. We have then the amount of um, water sold, the unit sold, liters, because you can't sell water in volts, um, and all that kind of stuff. But we don't have any context. We don't have any context in the fact table. That's by design, because that's where the dimensions come into play. So you have a one-to-many between the fact table and the dimension table. So you have a dimension table for all your customers. You have a dimension table for all your different kinds of utilities. But you only join between the fact table and one or more dimension tables. You don't do fact table, dimension table, dimension table, dimension table, and six other steps, because that is inefficient and that is slow. But what I see uh, rather often is that people come in, especially in Power BI, they start to do their data modeling. They don't know very much about the normal forms. So they're doing it the way that most people used to do it, basically by, by heart. This sounds like a reasonable idea. What happens is you're going to find yourself with a square peg that you need to force through a round hole. Unfortunately, DAX is very good at that. You can get away with a crappy model as long as you know DAX. And DAX hurts my brain. So I much have, rather have a good model that supports my, my reporting needs instead of having to basically put about a ton of lipstick on a pig, which is what you're doing if you try to, again, force a square peg down a round hole. Then, for some reason, people also hear about the whole Kimball modeling thing, and they don't necessarily know what a fact table is or a dimension table, but heck, we'll, we'll slap fact as a prefix, and we'll slap dim as a, as a prefix. And suddenly we are not talking about the same thing. More than once I've come out to a customer, they have their data warehouse model in Power BI. And it is in fact just a relational uh, transactional data model, which is fine. Just don't try to call it something that it isn't because you approach uh, reporting in, in completely different ways. So how, how do you go from here? Well, there is a case to be made for everyone, just about everyone working with any kind of data. It doesn't matter if you're stuck in Excel, just doing Excel. Excel is still data. Reading up and understanding the basic normalization concepts, and from there, looking at data warehouse and data 
data warehouse modeling, it is going to change your world, literally. It is not difficult, it's not easy, but it's not difficult to conceptualize either, especially not from a basic, um, basic level. So in, in, in short, a transactional model is designed for quick uh, writes. You can write data quickly. You shouldn't have to do any aggregations. In fact, you don't want to do aggregations. You want to store each and every transaction. In a data warehouse instead, it is fine to duplicate data. In a transactional model, we abhor duplicates because duplicates means that we should probably separate that specific data into its own table. As soon as you start duplicating data, then that's a signal that you need to do multiple tables. In a uh, in data warehouse, that is that doesn't matter. In fact, you can really uh, get your performance up if you start to do um, uh, aggregation or duplication, which is also known as denormalization. If you're not used to doing data modeling for either, you're going to have a splitting headache trying to figure out these two sides of the same coin, but they are the same coin, two sides of the same coin. And again, everybody should look at this data modeling because it becomes so much easier to do proper reporting based off it. What happens if you don't have a decent data model? Well, we're back to the square peg in the round hole. You might be able to force DAX to give you the numbers that you think you're looking for. But can you be sure that the numbers always hold up when you find the next quirk in your data model? I don't think that is the case. And at the end of the day, keep it simple, stupid. The simpler you make your model, the more standardized you make your model, the more you're going to find that your your the basic idea, the, the reason why you're doing the whole thing is so much easier. At the end of the day, you're supporting the business and you're supporting uh, a business outcome. It is not so much about the specific implementation, but definitely read up before you start poking. Simon looks a bit like he's been run over by a truck. I felt very smart in the beginning of this talk. <laughs> Now I have so many questions. Oh, hit me. But yeah, I and I <clears throat> I have had so many questions. <clears throat> Sorry. I have so many questions and I forgot half of them over time. But what I take away from this is or the main question should you in general independent on what kind of data set you want to run reports on? have transactional for write and always have some kind of data warehouse to do reporting on, will that always be the most efficient if you do your data modeling the right way? Well, as always, you, you have a funny way of cutting to the chase. And <laughs> what you're talking about is basically the holy grail. There are two different... Um, well, you, you, you need to solve two different problems. And for the... Mm -hmm. The write stuff, the transactional model is the fastest and uh, probably the best. For read stuff, well, the data warehouse is definitely going to be faster. Can you sort the whole thing in a transactional model? 
Yes, you can, especially if you start to add creative ways of of leveraging um, large data storage, such as column store in in a SQL Server, for instance, that is designed for for doing huge reads, and it's going to give you more than decent and reasonable performance. It will make things slightly more difficult for you when it comes to the reporting side of things, because you're not dealing with a pure um, data warehouse model. You could perhaps use Power Query in Power BI to turn it into a kind of a pseudo uh, data, warehouse, data warehouse model, if you so choose. You cannot do it the other way around. And there is also a big difference in reading from a database versus doing reporting, right? Yes. Reporting yeah. is is just about always huge reads. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're looking at uh, the, the revenue over time, over a year, for instance. That, by definition, needs means that you need to scroll through all the data for that year. And also, to add to that, if I understood it correctly, the performance hit in a data warehouse is when you join your information it's not searching for it it's a good good question so searching always means that you need to traverse a lot of data Mm -hmm. but yes in the grand scheme of things the joining will hurt performance more yeah so it's it's no problem to have like you said a lot of duplicates to search through it's the fact that you're putting them together that will have the biggest performance impact. So rather have, it's it's always like if you have CD, CDs or records of some sort. No, I, I will stop just there because I couldn't <laughs> finalize that thought. But it, it's easier to search through a lot of things than putting them together. So rather having red, yeah mind blown and you you can see the dimensions as well we we generally slice based off a dimension and Mm -hmm. by that i mean you're going to use the the customer dimension for instance to slice the fact table Mm i.e give me just the rows in the fact table that correspond to customer bob which Mm -hmm. in turn has the key one so what do you Mm -hmm. store in the fact rows well one it is going mm-hmm. to be much more efficient to scan for one than it is to scan for Bob. Yeah. And then I have my favorite thing that tend to, to blow non-data people's minds. Date tables. Date is going to be a dimension just like any other. Think about it. What do we know about a date? Well, I might know that today is, is May, not February, the 18th. And we are now in May. Fine, we're, we're in agreement with that. But is this the f- the second or the third quarter? Well, we know that this is the second quarter, right? But how do you how do you figure that out from a specific date? That's where the date table comes into play. So mm-hmm. a date table has as its key the the whole date, and then you have attributes such as month, month in English, month in different languages, which quarter which financial quarter it is, depending on your specific company, and so on and so forth. And you get this for free. The fact table only knows about the date. 
but then you can suddenly slice. So you can look at your revenue per quarter, per half year, per whatever. As long as you have it in the dimension, you can slice your fact table by it. And now the penny dropped on what you meant many episodes ago when you explained the exact same thing. There we that go. is brilliant. It is. It is. It's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. That's and I'm also cool. seriously over time. <laughs> yeah, I think this was the longest focus segment ever. I think it was a focus rant, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I think we could make this into an episode of its own. <laughs> right. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> no, because you're supposedly talking about a huge Power BI update. Well, no, it's not a huge one. And I'm, I'm actually going to go through it very, very quickly. There, the, the May update uh, wasn't that big especially in the light of, of Embass. Um, I mean, Embass has had so much cool stuff. But the modern visual tooltip is in, in preview, which is taking the, uh, the visual tooltips when you hover over something in, in Power BI, it really kicks it up a notch. It's a much more modern design, and I can't wait to see what people with much more design skill than me make of it. <laughs> The smart narratives and the anomaly detection has gone GA, which is super cool. We now have some pretty serious AI augmentation in the hands of just about anyone. I'm, I'm excited to start using anomaly detection. I've, I've tried it in a few of my, my customer reports, and it's, it's literally just turning on anomaly detection, and people go, whoa, kind of like Bill and Ted, whoa. <laughs> And we also have, I think you're going to like this one, downstream inheritance for sensitivity labels. Again, it's in preview. So Power BI will apply and look at the sensitivity labels that comes up from, from upstream, which is super neat. Um, I've, I don't think there is any other uh, BI reporting tool available today that does this. So really, really cool. Again, so many questions about that feature. <laughs> Because it, it, it's, it's it's extraordinary, but I see so many very, very, very complicated things. If, and, and this was, could be where I'm mistaken, if since you do this on a report or data set, mm -hmm. that data set yeah, can't be shared. So I wonder how that... Yeah, we need to, we, again, we need to do that session <laughs> yeah we we definitely do uh we definitely do. There, there there are so many uh, aspects of security and secure sharing mm -hmm. in power bi that it definitely needs its its own session i, mm -hmm. I totally mm -hmm. agree so what about the icon you don't like it <laughs> no I, I think i it, it i someone broke it for me when they said that it looks identical to the autodesk one well it, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Power BI because Google has its own tool that has a, a, an icon just about identical to Power BI. So yeah, I, mm -hmm. I don't know if they've kind of run out of ideas in Microsoft marketing. And, and it, yeah, I understand that they want it in Fluent. I, I get that. They want the same form language across. Sure. But I'm still still moving back to when my home municipality changed their logo many many years ago and i think the the taxpayers had to pay 36 million kroners to do that change because changing a logo isn't just changing a logo on one site 
It, nope. it must be a humongous job of changing that logo everywhere. And just looking at our local health provider that changed their name and logo two or three, four years ago even. Yeah, you, you still and see the old one. I still get letters with yep. the old name yep. and the old logo yep. four years later. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's weird. You're also making a change for us. I am. So the Azure Static Web Apps was something that I started to, to play with. It is integrated with GitHub. So um, we're, we're using, we're, we're going to be using Hugo, which is a site generator. And mm -hmm. that basically means that I write a blog post, for instance, in Markdown. I save it to my machine. I push it to GitHub. And as soon as I push it to GitHub, it spins up an environment, builds my site using a Hugo uh, binary, and then puts the result on the um, static web apps. And mm -hmm. just as I was poking around with this in preview, it actually went GA. So now it is generally available. There are two uh, levels. One is standard, which is, I think it's $9.99 per month, or the free one, which we're going to be using. It is, mm -hmm. as it says on the tin, it's free. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'm already using it on arcticdba.se, my own blog. And it is fantastic. So happy. I think you may have had that title previously, but now you're also the webmaster of EDP in Tech. Oh, crap. <laughs> the last time I actually were the webmaster of another site working with FrontPage many years ago. We have, or the world has had some quite serious cyber attacks over the last couple of weeks. And I think the biggest one were the attack on Colonial. Uh, and, and for you who don't know what that is, Colonial is the manager of the biggest fuel pipeline on the West Coast, if I'm not mistaken, of the US or East Coast. Uh, and they were hit by a cyber or ransomware attack by a group called Darkside. And it took out that entire pipeline and it will likely affect the entire coast it was on from a fuel point of view for months and months moving on it even raised the global oil price when you when you say took out that would be the control systems for the pipeline right? exactly right. everything they couldn't do anything everything were encrypted um and then there there a lot of things happened and and some say that the u.s countered that attack in a spectacular way they throw everything they had from a cyber defense point of view at them, and Darkseid had to actually or eventually release uh, the encrypted material and uh, hand back whatever material they said to have exfiltrated from the company. We also have, I think it's an ongoing attack uh, towards the public health service in Ireland, which is also currently not affecting too many but it's still an attack on the health department and some other parts of the healthcare system in Ireland uh, and I think this really shows that we are quickly accelerating into a dystopia where cyber attacks really 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 starts to impact normal citizens and where organizations in my opinion have a responsibility to ensure that they are as safe as they possible can be depending on the risk they are targeted of and ensure that they can handle these things. And moving back to a very hot topic in Sweden currently, don't put 
critical infrastructure where or critical information where it shouldn't be. For sure. Uh, and speaking about that and speaking about securing some rather nifty things, the RSA 2021 conference hit us last week and we had some really cool features that also goes into the next topic of Intune and Config Manager, but filters for conditional access were released. So as you may know, conditional access is only applicable to user objects. So if I tell you that your user is only allowed to sign into a compliant device, as an example, that will affect every device the user logs onto for a specific app. But and now we can add filters. So say, yes, when you try to sign into this app, you don't have to apply this condition if this device looks like that. Saying that, okay, it needs to be a compliant device, but not if it runs, let's say, Mac OS. And, and there are some options of doing that in conditional access as well, but nothing that hits the actual device. So we're getting closer and closer to actually getting to the point where we can have device-based conditional access as well. And that filter feature is something that also comes into play with Intune. So basically saying that we deploy this app as required to a user. And then we add a filter saying that, yes, this app should be installed for this user on any device it logs into as long as it isn't a Windows Virtual Desktop machine, as an example. So extremely powerful and super cool. Indeed. We also now have GPS-based uh, conditional access. So instead of just using IP, which is what we have had uh, been forced to do up until now for location, we can now require the device to send its GPS location and based on that, allow a sign-in or something like so. So basically geofencing. Yeah, exactly. That's the intention, which is kind of interesting when that data is stored and evaluated somewhere. So I think that is something that likely will be a sensitive topic, but needed in many industries and then for a lot of organizations. And it's not that hard to spoof either. No, sure, no. It, it, it is an, an, an added level of complexity, but it is not difficult to spoof a GPS signal. No, and I think it's, it's plausible you need to take, the, to, to take that risk into account. It's fairly easy to spoof your operating system as well. Yeah. Um, but in, in some cases, to spoof your GPS location, especially on mobile devices, you have to jailbreak or root it. That and then true. Intune should be able to pick that up instead. And we also have Azure AD login to Linux VMs in Azure in public preview. And that is quite remarkable. Adding to that the latest Ubuntu uh, release supports AD joining group policy, which is also quite remarkable. So I actually had a discussion today where I said to a customer, I, I, you're looking at Mac OS for your developers. I think Linux would be a better bet. <laughs> currently uh, i know things about mac os that's coming as well but uh, linux is really really getting there to become an actual good and and some of our listeners will probably throw things at me now but i think it actually becomes manageable and understandable for a non-linux admin and i think that will 
only be beneficial for many organizations. Totally agree. Uh, for Intune and Config Manager, filters is the big uh, thing for the release there. Uh, as you may remember from the last episode, we got GPS tracking capabilities in Intune as well. That, of course, ties into conditional access. Uh, and we also have a new Config Manager technical preview. It's not huge, but it adds some really nifty things, as well as a much better code um, editor within Config Manager. So for your PowerShell scripts within Config Manager, you can now manage it there and have a much better experience. And you can always argue where you should manage your code within the tool or not. But for, for some instances, I think that it's good to have that within the tool rather than having a separate tool for that purpose. We also had some new, in speaking, continuing on security, uh, we also have a new offering in terms of Windows where you now can buy Windows 10 secured core computers. So basically where you have full integrity from both the hardware and software side from the factory. So you can order specially designed PCs where the chipset and everything that runs on it is always verified through the entire process. So it, it's really taking the integrity protection of the OS, the apps that runs on it, the hardware, everything to the next level. What I question, and I haven't read up enough on it, is that they actually say that, yeah, you can run this with Windows 10 Pro, which I doubt since many of those features are enterprise today, it will come with Pro since you can't buy a PC with enterprise. That's something you buy as a license. But if you really care about endpoint security, you should use Windows Enterprise. And the, the last topic I'm going to touch on today, um, Microsoft just shy of two weeks ago, uh, posted a blog post answering, answering Europe's call storing and processing EU data in the EU have you read that blog post or have you heard about it? I've heard about it I haven't uh, read it mm. and, and what this is a response to the ongoing debate and discussion in terms of what it, which REMS with the old safe harbor, privacy shield uh, Cloud Act, it's coming back again. Uh, since it, some say uh, that the the laws and regulations in the U.S. makes it impossible to securely store data within a U.S. cloud service, regardless of where the data is stored. And this is now Microsoft's one of Microsoft's responses to this. And believe me, there were a very furious debate on why why they are doing this or not but the fact is that microsoft aims to by the end of 2022 enable customers in the uh, eu or europe in general to store and process all of their azure and office 365 and, and for the matter power platform data within eu data centers only then does this matter and as far as I can tell, with the current regulations, it doesn't mean anything. Because it's still an American company. Exactly. And and it, I find it very, very hard to see that they would be able to cut all the ties to 
the US side, saying that, yeah, we will put all of our support engineers, everything that touches EU data, in a completely different, separated environment from um, the US side of things or the rest of the world. I just don't see that happening. And I think you could always then argue that who makes the calls? In the end, if, if a, a US service or agency, a certain agency, uh, tells Satya Nadella that you need to provide us this data and we don't care how you do it. <laughs> like, he will just call someone and, and tell them to, like, make it, make being it the devil's ad Exactly, being the devil's advocate here. He will call someone in Europe and say, take this USB stick, put it into this hard server and, and pull out that data and send it to me in a... Well, what is a hard server? <laughs> it's I think not we have the name defined. of this episode, hard, hard server. <laughs> it's not software defined, let me tell you that. Right. So it, it's... it's um, I wouldn't say, some say that this is a smokescreen. I'm a bit more diplomatic than that and say this is good. It, it's good, regardless of if it solves anything or not, it's good that this is happening. Um, but we also should keep the eyes on the ball here and, and hope for um, a better political solution because this can't be solved by technology. It's no, impossible. It, it this, this is people made this mess. People are the only ones that can solve it. Mm -hmm. And I think they are in a huge fight of who made this mess, the US or the European Union. I think the answer to that question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And on that, we are actually out of time. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of impressed that we managed to cover just about everything that we planned on despite my rant going over many, many minutes. Yeah, and I think it wasn't a rant. I think it was a different way of seeing things. And I think by describing it in a very, very... Like, I think I get it because I think in 3D. I think when you explain about the cube modeling and all of that, I see data things. I see Lego bricks of data flying around in my head. And, and when you explain it, I, I see the logic. I don't understand the logic. I see the logic. And, and that helps me think. And I think on that bombshell, it is time to end the show. Simon needs to go have his head examined. And the rest of us have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Knee Deep in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson and Simon Binder. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypentech.com.